Well, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found once again in the book of Mark, and we will be reading Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 13. So Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked Him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Please pray with me. Father, it's our desire again to seek Your assistance as we look at Your Word this afternoon. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from Your law. Instruct us, not just in our minds though, but instruct our souls, instruct our hearts, mold them and shape them that we might have wills that seek to follow You. Lord, that You would strip away every encumbrance towards faithfulness to You and every hindrance towards seeing You and understanding You and delighting in You. For Lord, that's our desire. We don't simply want to grow our minds and have fat heads. Lord, we want to worship You. And not just with our tongues, but with our actions the way we live, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for You who died and rose again on our behalf. So we pray that You would use Your Word this afternoon towards that end. In Your name we pray. Amen. As many of you know, I, I once was a teacher. Actually, I taught for a number of years. And one of the things that... Um, 
we do as teachers is when there's a struggling student, we'll frequently refer them to get private tutoring so that they might learn the lessons that they have yet to learn or that they should have learned in class. And such is the need for Jesus' disciples. In fact, you could think of this story of the transfiguration as a kind of private uh, lessons that the disciples are given from Jesus. It's Peter, James, and John's private instruction. And you'll notice that this passage is intimately tied to Jesus' instruction to the crowds that we looked at last week. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 1 is actually the conclusion to that speech. So chapter 1, it's one of those odd chapter breaks. Chapter 9, sorry. It's one of those odd chapter breaks at verse 1. It would seem more natural to actually make it verse 39 of chapter 8. Because it is Jesus' final words. It finishes what he's saying. And, but verse 1 is actually a really helpful conclusion to the explanation of what it means to follow Christ. But it's a helpful connection because it explains the connection between Jesus to the discipleship that he just spoke of and the transfiguration. The fact that that break is there. So there are three things that Jesus wants his disciples to learn in this private tutorial. First of all, he wants them to see who he really is. And that's seen in chapters or in verses one through three at the revelation of Christ's glory. Secondly, he wants the disciples to listen to him. And that's the right response to Christ that we see in verses four through eight. Thirdly, he wants them to remember what it means to truly Follow him. What will the cost be of following Jesus? And that's seen in the account of the recognition of Elijah in 9 through 13. Another way to summarize this passage is to see Christ is to follow Christ. And it is to listen to Christ. And we'll see that in the verses that follow. Let's first look at the revelation of Christ's glory that demonstrate our need to see Christ for who He is. You'll see that Jesus concludes His instructions to His disciples on what it means to follow Him with this final piece of encouragement that I said could be verse 39 of chapter 8, but it's 9-1. See, even though the disciples should expect difficulty, pain, and suffering, and possibly death by martyrdom, Before that death comes, he says, some of you standing here will see the kingdom of God come in power. He's offering an encouragement. Yes, life will be hard, but that's not the end of the story. Because after life, glory's coming. And then he's going to demonstrate in the transfiguration what he means. See, it's also helpful to remember that the larger section of Mark versus Uh, Chapter 8, verse 22 to chapter 10 or so is dealing with this theme of spiritual sight. Remember, it's bookended by the healings of two blind men. There was the blind men uh, that we saw a couple weeks ago, and then it'll be finished with the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And you'll notice that the key word in this story, chapter 9, 
is the word to see. It comes up in verse 1, verses 2 and 3, then verse 4, 8, and 9. It comes a lot. And that's the, the, the author's wanting to draw our attention to what real sight looks like, who Jesus really is. But what he means by his promise in verse 1 isn't explained. Some of you will see the kingdom of God come in power. He's just talking about not being ashamed when he returns in verse uh, 38. And then he promises the kingdom of God will come in power and some will see it. That's kind of an enigmatic statement. What's he mean by that? Well, it's explained, of course, in the next verse, six days later. Six days later, he brings Peter, James, and John up with him on a mountain. And notice some of the things that, the, this, that are described here in this verse. Six days, a high mountain. A description of the radiance of Christ's clothes in verse 3. And then a voice from a cloud tell us that what Jesus is taking these disciples on up on the mountain with him to experience is the same thing that Moses experienced and actually Elijah also experienced on Mount Sinai. He's giving them their own private Mount Sinai experience. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and just follow the, just the description of what Moses experienced at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, it says this, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. And then Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens when Moses ascends up the mountain to, into this glorious cloud that's there is he gets the opportunity to, to personally experience the glory of God in a way that no man ever did. When he asked personally, God, show me your glory in Exodus 33. And then in Exodus 34, God did display his glory, but not the fullness of it. He actually had to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock. And Moses just got to see the glory glimpsing by him as the Lord passed by. But what the disciples get to see is they get to see the glory of God. That same glory displayed before their very eyes in the face of Jesus Christ. And he is transfigured before him. And that's often why this text is called the transfiguration. The word transfigure is actually a, a Greek word that we're familiar with. It's the word metamorphomai, where we get the word metamorphosis. But the verb itself actually refers to the act of giving outward expression to one's inward character. It's the outward expression of what one truly is. So it's not putting on a mask. It's the opposite. It's taking off the mask to display who one really is. And so here, Jesus Christ is truly being revealed. In fact, in Philippians 2, 
this word morphe, that's kind of the root word in, in metamorphuomai, uh, is used when it tells of Jesus who is in the form of God. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. That word form is the same word, morphe. And so what he's saying is Jesus, who was in in his natural form was the most glorious being in existence, took on flesh to hide his true form. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's displaying it. It's reversing what took place in Philippians chapter 2. But, but why the transfiguration? Why did Jesus want these three disciples to see him on full display? Well, the answer is actually seen in verse 1. So you remember that he had just explicitly told his disciples what his future would be. Look at verse 831. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then after saying that, he told them what they should expect if they were going to follow after him. If anyone wishes to come after me, verse 34, he must deny himself, take up his own cross and follow me. And of course, Jesus' counsel ends in chapter 9, verse 1. He concludes his counsel to the disciples by saying, glory's coming. And then he shows them. See, he wants his disciples to understand that even though he will have to take up a cross, even though they too will have to take up a cross, it will be worth it. The cross is not the end of the story. And therefore, the cross is actually worth it all. That's, that's, that's the point. It's worth losing the whole world, pain, suffering, loss, because unspeakable glory is in their definite future. And nothing can take it away. And so I believe he's giving them a sneak, sneak peek into who he really is so that they would have a strengthened resolve to follow him. Because he knows they need it. Because he knows they still don't understand where he's going. Even though he's explicitly told them, they don't quite get it. And so he wants to at least show them what's on the other side. So when the cross comes, when the suffering comes, when the difficulty comes, they won't panic and think that they've believed a lie. And they remember what they saw on the mountain. So yes, life will be hard, but there's a glorious future coming. See, on the other side of the cross, they will get to experience what Moses only got to experience partially. On the other side of the cross, they will get to experience it in full. And not just be able to see Christ's glory in full when they see Him in glory, but they will be able to also see Him in glory with resurrected bodies so that they could truly see Him in full without being consumed. They will have a greater taste then of the glory of God that it was even greater than what Adam experienced in the garden. Because again, it will be with resurrected bodies. They notice again Christ's clothes as they're described in verse 3. 
His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, so as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That word radiant, it's a word that's used to describe the brightness of the sun. So that's what it looks like. They see Christ and it's like walking, uh, going from a dark room into the bright blazing sunlight. They can barely see Christ before them. And then consider what Daniel chapter 12 says about the resurrected bodies that they will receive. Not just that Christ receives, but that they will receive. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who will sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Emphasis on the everlastingness of that, the brightness of that glory. That's what the disciples will possess as they see the greatness of the glory of God on full display in heaven. And there is an unspeakable glory awaiting every person who dies in Christ. For every person who is trusted not in their own good works, but in Christ's suffering on the cross for their salvation. Those who have chosen, because they realize what Christ has done for them, they've chosen to follow after Him, to live the same life that He's lived. Not for the things of this world, but for Him and for His glory. They too will experience the fullness of glory after they die. And Jesus is just giving them a sneak peek of this here. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth even comparing to the glory that awaits those who die in Christ. The sufferings, the, the most horrendous, painful, grievous suffering of this life isn't even worth comparing. It's, it's not even, you can't even contrast it. It's so different. I mean, you see, Paul doesn't even have words to describe how great and how awesome and how tremendous the real glory of God is. There is nothing greater in all of creation than the glory of God. Because it's the radiance of God. And, and human beings will partake in that glory. Nothing can compare to it. And this is also why he later says in Romans 8, in in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This promise can't be taken away. Not even with tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Even if they kill us. Because as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sound a lot, a lot like chapter 8, verse 34? That's what's coming, Christian. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But it's okay. Why? Because in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can ever separate us from the love of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, don't worry about the threats. Don't worry about the crosses. 
the torture, the humiliation, the shame. Don't worry about it because it doesn't compare to what's coming. And nothing, Christian, can ever take that away from you. That is yours. Because it's your faith is in Christ. And He's purchased it. And nothing can take it away from Him. So His point is, life is hard. Christ's point to the disciples was, life is hard. But glory is coming. And this is why Paul's greatest longing was for the resurrection. You recall in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But whatever gain I had, I count it loss now for the sake of Christ, that I might know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings, that I might be even conformed to His death in order that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says, I'm willing to count all these things as they're lost. In fact, I count them as all trash. The greatest things I've ever achieved in all the world are trash compared to the glory that's coming. So not even the greatest things in this life can compare to the glory that's coming. Neither can the worst pains be compared. Life is hard, but glory is coming. And this is why Paul's life was so full of joy, despite the incredible amount of suffering that Paul experienced. He, he in fact, says it to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Do you see the theme? This light momentary affliction. He describes what that affliction is in chapter 11. And it's horrific. But he says it's light in comparison to the glory that's coming. Life is hard, but glory's coming. And this is what Jesus wants His disciples to realize. He's not, he's not pulling any punches. He's being honest with them. He's telling them the truth. If you follow Me, you're going to suffer. But that's not the end of it. There's glory beyond the cross. Both His cross as well as theirs. Now, of course, when they see Christ like this, the experience is mind-blowing. In fact, they don't even know what to say. In fact, it says they're terrified. And this is especially confusing when they're especially confused when they see Elijah and Moses show up. They don't know what to say. But this brings us to the lesson they learn about the right response to the glory of Christ. Look at verse 4. It says that Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good for us to be here. So let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, except Jesus alone. 
And so Elijah and Moses show up, and it's, it's, it's just a brief cameo appearance. Because they show up, they have a discussion with Jesus, and then all of a sudden it's gone. They're gone. So why do they show up? Why are they there? What's the significance to having those two men here? Well, the text doesn't actually tell us. So we have to use our heads and other scriptures to try and figure this out. Most likely it's because both of these men also had Mount Sinai experiences. They heard a vo- the voice of God speak directly to them as they were on Mount Sinai, instructing them, and actually in both cases, instructing them to, in the power of God's Word. Moreover, both men are also tied to the prophesied Messiah. Deuteronomy 18.15 prophesies that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. And when he arrived, it instructs them to listen to him. Look at Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15. See what it says about Moses or the prophet like Moses. Then the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your own countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you've asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of my assembling. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I have commanded him. And he shall come, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This gives a hint to why God says what he does to his disciples. Of course, also Malachi was prophesied that he prophesied that before the arrival of the Messiah, Elisha would appear, Elijah would appear. That's in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So, not only did these men have a Mount Sinai experience in seeing the glory of God and and hearing from the voice of God, they're also tied to the person of the Messiah in in prophecies about them. And another likely reason for their presence is they're often associated with the Old Testament. Moses being the primary prophet of the law and Elijah of the prophets. So they represent both the law and the prophets, which likewise point to the Messiah. And so it seems that what the Lord is signaling is what these men wrote, what these men prophesied, everything that these men pointed to is standing before you in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. And of course, the text tells us that Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus. And when Peter sees this, because he's afraid, he feels prompted that he should say something. He wants to join the conversation. So he suggests that they build three tents, one for each of them. Now, with this request, Peter's wanting to honor these men. This is, he's being very uh, uh, gracious 
Almost like a host. He wants to honor them for their significance. But the suggestion also shows us his partial blindness. Because he puts all three of those men on the same level. Let's make a tent for each of them. For Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus. Hinting at he doesn't, he's not getting the picture. Jesus is greater than these men. And apparently Jesus thinks so little of this suggestion that he doesn't even answer it. Who answers it? God himself from heaven speaks from the midst of the cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So again, the point is obvious. Listen to what Jesus is saying. See, the disciples' problem, remember, is that, as Jesus warned, don't, don't uh, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees who warned them. But they, he, he, they didn't understand what he meant by that. See, the disciples' problem is they're, they, they think of the Messiah, even though they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, they think of the Messiah in terms of how the scribes describe the Messiah and how the Pharisees describe the Messiah. They think of him as a military victor, not realizing that the reason, the primary purpose of the Messiah was not just to bring peace to Israel or glory to Israel, but it was to save people from their sins. But they don't understand that because they don't understand that's the problem. They need a Savior from their sin. And so He needs to instruct them again. God tells them, listen to what Jesus is saying. They're they're, they're doing more listening to the scribes than they are to Christ. And this expression, listen to Him, again, comes out of Deuteronomy 18.15. What's also interesting is, as we read earlier in the scripture reading today, is that Peter himself references this experience on Mount Sinai in his instruction to uh, the, the churches that he was writing to in Second Peter chapter one. And I'm just going to read it to you again and, and, and recall that when he references the transfiguration, the point Peter is making is. That's why we need to listen to God's Word. It's the same point that the voice from the cloud made. Check this out. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's unknown interpretation, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's point is, if God rebuked me and told me to listen, the same is true for how we should respond to God's Word today. 
Because this word is more fully confirmed than even what I got to experience. And so the application for us is obvious. Listen to Him. Don't don't listen as much to all the world's voices that are out there giving their philosophy on what matters in life and what's important. Even when you listen to sermons, what's most important in a sermon isn't the illustrations. It's, is the Word of God explained? Do you understand what the Word of God is saying? Guys, we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to just enjoy music or to just be with friends. Our greatest need is to listen to Him. And so when we come to listen to the Word, that's what we should be doing. And of course, not just listening that we understand what it says, but listening to understand so that we might live according to it. Which is, of course, what God wanted the disciples to do as well. So this then is the second purpose of the transfiguration. The first being that it was a foretaste, giving them a foretaste of the glory that was to come. Even if they had to go to a cross, there's glory coming on the other side. And the second point is an after, uh, sorry, uh, the second point is to listen to Jesus, to take his word seriously. Don't be listening so much to the scribes and what all the other philosophers say. Listen to Jesus. And the third lesson is seen in verses 9 through 13. Recognize Elijah. Notice that this is a little more enigmatic, but I think it'll become clear to you as we look through it. Because as they're coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone that they had, of what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And of course, they seize upon the statement, discussing with one another what this meant. And they asked him why the scribes, see again, they're hung up on the scribes, why do the scribes say what they say? And he says to them, of course, Elijah does come first to restore all things. See, Jesus wants them to recognize two things about Elijah. He wants them to recognize two things about Elijah. The first is, John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah. It's actually, the, the Matthean account in Matthew's Gospel, he makes it more explicit. That John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah to come. The forerunner of Jesus prophesied by Malachi. But the second thing he wants them to understand is he draws their attention back to what he said just days earlier, six days earlier, when he told them that what the cost would be for following Christ. Because remember, he draw, look, at he draws their attention back to what he says. How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. They're stuck on, well, who's, does the scribes say Elijah? And what do the scribes mean? They're focused on the scribes. When Jesus said, just pay attention to what I said, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And then after he's died, dead, he will rise again. Disciples, that's what you need to be paying attention to. You need to listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying because it's going to be shocking when it happens. And it was shocking. They weren't prepared for it. But he reminds them of what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And he does this not just to tell them about him, but also it reminds them what their future is going to be. Because right after, in chapter 8, right after he said the Son of Man 
will die, he says, you also be willing to take up your cross and follow me. See, Jesus answers their question about Elijah, but the answer is really directed to a deeper issue. Say, okay, yes, Elijah has come. But then, note, it, there's this, this kind of, seems, I'll use the word dark. It's not dark because it's God's word, but it's kind of morose. They're just asking a theological question. They're looking for information. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets really somber. You see that? He starts talking about death again and suffering, being treated with contempt in verse 12. And then the same thing in verse 13. I tell you, Elijah has come. But what does he say about Elijah? He talks about how he was treated. They did to him whatever they wished. So Jesus draws back their mind. Guys, you don't need to be worried about the scribes. You need to be worried about what's coming. And that your faith is held fast to what? To my words. See, they didn't take God's admonition seriously. See, even notice they're talking, not to Jesus at first, they're talking to one another, discussing with one another. But when they do ask Christ, they ask it in light of what the scribes have said. See, if they were really listening to Jesus, they would have connected Jesus' transfiguration with the promise of He will die and then three days later rise from the dead. He'll be resurrected. But they don't, of course. Instead, they're caught up in these rabbinic debates. And so Jesus answers their question, but His answer is aimed at sobering them. Because... For whatever reason, humans tend to be optimistic, especially religious humans. We tend to think things are always going to go better. But Jesus needs to remind them things will go infinitely great after this life. But it will be hard until then. See, Jesus brings their attention in verse 12 back to the cross and the reality of suffering. And his point being, disciples, remember what happened to John. Because that's what's going to happen to me. And men, that's what's going to happen to you as well. He's wanting to sober them. And you might be wondering, what Scripture is Jesus referring to when He notes that Elijah would be mistreated? Well, it's hard to know. Uh, because it doesn't seem to be, uh, it's not an explicit citation. I think most likely he's referencing Elijah's own words when Elijah himself describes the usual treatment that the prophets receive when they prophesy to God. See, Elijah ends up at Mount Sinai because he's fleeing from Jezebel, who is seeking to hunt him down. And as far as Elijah knows, he's all that's left. And so he says this to the Lord when the Lord asked him, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I am left, and they seek my life to take it away. See, I think Elijah's saying here, I am here because people are wanting to kill me. Because I've preached your word. And, and God, that's what happens to all the people that preach your word. They get killed. They die. 
This is how all of your servants are treated. And Jesus is picking up on this. But notice also Jesus' phrasing. They did to him whatever they wished. That's very noteworthy. Instead of just saying they beheaded John the Baptist, they did to him whatever they wished. This is a direct quote of what Herod said to Salome in Mark chapter 6, verse 22. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And of course, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. I could, I, when you make that connection, it's, it's probably not too much of a stretch to imagine Christ, a lump being in Christ's throat when he says that. Because we know how deeply Jesus was grieved when they found out about the loss of John. And they did to him whatever they wished. See, Jesus is saying to the disciples, men, this is how God's servants get treated. It's how I'm going to be treated. It's how John was treated. Men, prepare yourselves. And not just the twelve will experience this, but many others. So you remember what uh, Stephen, the leader in the early church, experienced when he got a chance to preach. Some of the Jews wanted to know about Jesus. And so he explains to them about Jesus, going all the way back in the Old Testament. And after he's done with his sermon, they cut him off. He's not really finished, but they cut him off. And it says in verse, chapter, Acts 7, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw, this is no accident, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus, he got, he got to see glory. But the Jews who would not listen to God's Word, what did they do? They cried out in a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at Him. And they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And Jesus' point is, men, to see Me is to listen to Me. And those who listen to Me and see Me will follow me. To see Christ is to listen to Christ, is to follow Christ. And these are really the three lessons from the transfiguration. The suffering is worth it. Because glory is coming. And nothing can compare to it. But brothers and sisters, it's coming. If you want to listen to God's Word, I know there's a lot of popular preachers out there today that just want to tell you to Jesus wants to make your life happy, healthy, and wealthy. Listen to God's Word. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Suffering's coming, but it doesn't, it's not worth being compared to the glory that's coming afterwards. Secondly, listen to God's Word. Again, against all those, the world's empty voices, listen to God's Word. 
And thirdly, remember that God's servants usually suffer greatly. Remember that. Especially as you consider, do I want to follow Him? And some of you may be there right now. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you attended church all your life. But it's always been just an intellectual idea. It's always been just about believing certain truths. And there's never really been a point where you decided, I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to live for the glory of God. And what the Lord wants you to know is there is no greater, no more wiser choice that you could make. But He doesn't want you to be foolish into thinking that that choice will lead to greater peace in this life or greater wealth or greater health or anything else that this world can offer. It may happen, but that will be an anomaly. That will, that, that is not, that will not be normal. If you choose to follow Christ, it's probably going to be hard. But it will be glorious. And it will be worth it. It will be the wisest choice you could ever make. So, with that, let us pray.